You are listening to the APSI Podcast, the association of people supporting employment first, with your host, Chris Davies. Hello, everyone out there, and welcome back to another Minnesota APSI Podcast. Today is January 26, 2021. Happy New Year, everybody. And uh, it also just happens to be my sister-in-law's birthday today. So uh, shout out to Luann, wherever you are, and happy birthday to you. We're very excited uh, about uh, for this podcast, and uh, welcome especially to, to anyone new, anybody who stumbled upon APSI today. It is wonderful to have you. And of course, to all of our faithful longtime listeners and watchers, welcome back. It's the first podcast of the year. And I'm so excited. We have a great guest here with us today uh, who I'm going to introduce in just a moment. Uh, but her name is Allie Strong Martin, and she's with LifeWorks. And uh, we're going to learn a lot more about Allie here in just a minute. Uh, as is per tradition, uh, before we get started, I always like to just remind everybody a little bit about APSI by reciting our uh, purpose statement uh, that we have as an organization. Minnesota APSI is an action-oriented organization, and we exist to bring people together to raise expectations about employment for people with disabilities so they can contribute and assume their roles and responsibilities in their communities. Now, employment is the same wages, same standards, same expectations, responsibilities, and opportunities that are available to all working adults. Uh, we strongly believe, as does our guest here today, that employment one person at a time is indeed the avenue out of poverty and isolation. So thank you. Thank you for joining us again. And uh, Ali Strong, Martin, hello, happy new year. Hi, Chris. Yeah, thank you for having me on today. Uh, thank you. We're, uh, we're so delighted to have you. Allie did a training uh, for Minnesota APSI conference last October, and she really knocked it out of the park and uh, was a big hit. And uh, we knew that we had to invite her in for a, for a podcast after that. So Allie is the uh, business development assistant at LifeWorks. And why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself, Allie? Yeah, sure. So thank you, Chris, again. Um, I currently work at LifeWorks on our new business development and innovation team. So most of our efforts in the past few years have centered around disability inclusion. And just a little bit about LifeWorks in case you don't know or folks out there listening um, haven't heard of us. Um, LifeWorks was founded in 1965 um, by families who recognize the importance of advocacy and breaking down barriers for people with disabilities to be a part of our communities. And today we are really committed to self-determined support careers with competitive wages and developing really innovative opportunities that enhance people's lives. Um, part of that work is that we do um, offers employment services for people with disabilities. And on my team, the business development team, we 
really learn from that long history. Um, we're working both internally on our own organizational culture and our own learning, um, as well as externally with other disability organizations, other employers and community partners um, in order to make our communities more accessible, equitable and more inclusive places for people with disabilities to live and work. And I've been with LifeWorks only since 2019. And that's the same year that I graduated with my master's degree in human rights from the University of Minnesota. And before that, I earned my bachelor's degrees in nonprofit leadership and international studies from Murray State University in Murray, Kentucky. And I got first started in disability services working in a direct support role at an outdoor recreational camp for children and teens with disabilities in my hometown of Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, and since then, I've worked on supporting different international disability rights programming um, and again, studied disability rights in undergraduate and graduate school. And the last thing I'll say in this introduction is that I do want to mention that um, I come into this space um, with my own experience of disability in that I have a mental health related disability, um, which is what many call uh, a non-apparent or an invisible disability. And I talk about this when I introduce myself for um, different presentations and trainings, because especially for this one, because it relates to what we'll talk about later. Um, but for me, I mentioned this is that um, I have the privilege of being able to um, quote pass in most social settings as being non-disabled. And I have the privilege of being able to choose whether or not I disclose my mental health conditions. And therefore I get to prepare myself for any potential bias or judgment. And not everyone with a disability has that privilege that I do. Um, and so again, we'll talk about this more later, but um, with the social model of disability, um, it says that people are not really, quote, disabled by the features of their, you know, individual unique bodies or minds, but by barriers in our communities and in our society. And so the last thing I'll say is that you might notice that um, I might kind of interchange while we're having this conversation um, by referring to people with disabilities as like they, or I might refer to them as we um, and include myself in that. But I do recognize that in almost always when I come into a space um, and in professional spaces is that I'm not automatically um, what I'll talk about quote unquote disabled by um, society. So that was a long introduction, but that's that's all about me. <laughs> that's a wonderful introduction. Uh, not not too long at all and uh, such an incredible journey you've already had, you know it, it, and if you don't mind me saying it, uh, it's your your sort of, uh, in a lot of ways, just on the precipice of, mm -hmm. of this world and your career and all the things you're going to discover, but what a journey you've already had. And so glad that it, it led you to us, you know, here today. Yeah, so Allie alluded, um, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Allie alluded 
to uh, the models. You know, she talked about the social model. And Allie talks about uh, four uh, models, theoretical models of disability that really impact how uh, society views disability. And Allie will correct me in all the ways I'm wrong here in a second, but how society uh, views disability and, and how that impacts all aspects of life um, for, for everyone. And uh, today we're, we're specifically going to be, uh, because of APSI's mission, we're gonna be specifically drawing those back to how they you know, affect employment. And um, there are four models, and again, Allie will correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, she's going to talk about the medical model, uh, as well as the charity model, the social model, and the human rights model. Did I get all that right? Yeah, you got it right. <laughs> all right, awesome, awesome. So Allie's going to start out by talking a little bit about the, the medical model, and then we're just gonna, we're going to just keep going from there. So uh, take her away. Tell us about the medical model. Allie. Yeah, that sounds good. Um, so first, I'll start out by um, giving just a quick description of what I mean and what um, others mean, because by no means am I the first person to come up with with all of these models. Um, so I'll be, I'll be citing um, a lot of different organizations and individuals um, as kind of you know sources that um, that I've learned this information from. So what we mean when we talk about theoretical models. So by that, we mean frames of reference, which have emerged in both academic research done by both people with disabilities and people without disabilities, as well as a lot of just commentary from um, the lived experience of people with disabilities who, whether or not they're in, you know, academia or, um, you know, hold advanced degrees or anything, they're just communicating about their own experiences, um, navigating communities um, as people with disabilities. So over time, um, the models that we're going to talk about um, have helped communities and society frame disability and understand people with disabilities in um, some negative ways that we'll talk about first, um, but then also there's room mostly um, that have been put forth by people with disabilities themselves. There's really room for positive growth and how we can um, use these models to move forward into the future. And I did this a little bit already in my introduction, but in this first couple sections on the medical model specifically, I'm going to probably uh, preface some different phrases or things that I talk about with the word quote, and for I'll say it out loud for access purposes, but um, kind of using those air quotes with my fingers, um, because I think some of this history and the phrases are really hard to talk about and they're really hard to think about um, and in no way do I want what I say here um, or what we talk about here to be you know defining um, who people with disabilities really are so when I make kind of like this really intentional demonstration of saying quote that's just what that's what I'm trying to think about there um, but I do think, though, even that's hard to dwell on some of this history, um, it is important for us to be able to have these um, kind of, I call them constructively critical conversations, because um, I do think it's 
it can be easy for disability service providers, um, other disability organizations, and even non-disabled people in general to kind of gloss over a lot of this history or to pretend like some of these views aren't still present with us here today. So I'll dive in now um, into more about the medical model specifically. And the medical model is one of the most common views of disability still in our society today. And in short, it views people with disabilities as um, people who need to be fixed. They might be viewed as, quote, broken or as deviating from normal health status. Um, who defines normal is, you know, up for up for debate in a lot of these um, in a lot of these talks about the medical model. But one of the one of the sources um, that I've really learned a lot from is a um, a website magazine kind of publication called Disabled World, and they um, state that the medical model um, sees that disability is a problem of an individual person that's caused by disease or other health condition, which therefore, they say, requires sustained medical care provided in the form of individual treatment by professionals. So I think that um, that ties into a lot of, um, you know, disability services. And we've been talking about that um, at LifeWorks internally. And, um, and we've also been, again, dealing with this history that it wasn't very long ago um, in our country's history when people with disabilities were viewed as so deviating from the norm or were viewed as so quote unquote sick that they were involuntarily segregated into institutions. And um, one of the things I'll mention to wrap up kind of this um, overview of the medical model is also citing a really great resource that's uh, local to Minnesota, but obviously on the internet, you can, you can access it from anywhere that you're listening into, but the Minnesota Governor's Council on Developmental Disabilities um, created this really great historical educational project called Parallels in Time. And they go really into deep uh, detail about how a lot of these institutions were literally called hospitals. And that really, for me, made that direct comparison to this history of the medical model under which people with disabilities are perceived to be sick or as in needing to be fixed to some previously defined state of normalcy. And how do you think the... Uh, medical model has impacted employment for people with disabilities. Yeah, I think, you know, during this time in history, um, when we're talking about this, um, people with disabilities did work in some capacities, and it kind of varied state by state. But when I've really focused on institutions, specifically that time in history, um, we know that most cases in institutions, employment and work was not a choice, but rather it was more like forced labor almost. And so the, the Parallels and Time Project um, also details how people with disabilities were used you know, in these institutions as free labor to care for other 
inmates in these institutions and or to just be productive for the institutions itself. Um, so that's kind of the history part that I see impacted um, early employment, but we wouldn't call it employment. Um, and in addition to history, um, currently I've been learning a lot about the medical model and the role that it's played in the, the stigma and the deeply entrenched bias that still exists today when it comes to people with disabilities being able to obtain integrated and competitive employment. And the National Black Disability Coalition, um, an organization that I've learned a lot from over the past year, um, they talk about that the individual with disabilities is in the sick role under the medical model. And they, they talk about that when people are sick, they are excused from these normal obligations of society. Um, and their examples they list are like going to school, getting a job, taking on family responsibilities. And so that connection to, you know, viewing people with disabilities as somehow being sick or in need of treatment, um, that kind of, it, it is a real barrier to, um, to I think, people's perceptions of um, what people with disabilities can do um, in terms of employment. And the one of the other connections, and the last thing I'll mention right now, um, that the National Black Disability Coalition makes is that I thought was really interesting in kind of terms of modern uh, and, you know, in the last couple decades landscape is that they made the connection of the correlation between the medical model and public policy related to disability. So they um, make the direct connection to the social security system in which disability is defined as the inability to work. Um, and so they, you know, on, on their resources, they really make that connection. And I think that, that I see that um, through coworkers and colleagues who have been in the disability uh, employment services for a long time is that that um, also ties to some issues and concerns that we hear from people with disabilities themselves who really want to work, but they also don't know how that's going to impact um, their uh, maybe public benefits or their health care coverage or, you know, access to different services. So um, I think that it's, it's definitely, it's tied to both this kind of history um, and the medical model also um, still shows up and still um, creates uh, some problems for um, for em employment today. Sure, sure, absolutely, very very well stated. And you know, just to sort of <clears throat> add on my perspective, which is very similar to some of the things you just yeah. said. And uh, would you say it'd be fair to say that uh, the medical model uh, and the paradigm it, it created for employment? even today has continued to uh, kind of perpetualize uh, people's beliefs about what people with disabilities can do uh, in terms of employment out in the community. And it's still something mm -hmm. I think we're, 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 you know, still struggling with even today, yeah. but we'll get into yeah. more, more of that in a minute. And, you know, since you mentioned the, uh, the benefits uh, and that a lot of people are, and uh, you're correct when you say a lot of folks are concerned about working because they're concerned about 
how it will affect their benefits. Uh, mm -hmm. I just happened to attend a training with the Work Incentives Connection last week. And so there are great resources out there. So for anybody watching today that, that you know, when Allie said that, it sort of uh, caught their attention or a light bulb went off in their head. Um, some great resources are the Work Incentives Connection through Goodwill and also Disability Benefits 101. Uh, so you can just go to db101.org to start learning and, and figuring out who to connect with. And, and uh, our advice um, from the organization I work for, which is Kaposia, is to always go to those experts. And it's always a good idea to talk to those benefit experts, at those, those two places, one of those two, and, and, and really get the, uh, the right information. Uh, in, a, in a nutshell, you're always better off working. You're always going to, you can work and yeah. uh, there are things you need to know, but you're always better off working. So, okay, so let's move into uh, the next model uh, that Allie's going to talk about uh, for us today. Or I don't mean to say it that way, like you're not here. Hi, Allie. <laughs> All right, Allie, why don't you, why don't you talk about the, uh, the social model? The social model, or would you want oh, me no, to start? No, I'm sorry. Yeah. I, no, yeah, you're thank good. Thank you. Thank you. See, <laughs> somebody's paying attention. Oh, uh, yeah. No, please. Uh, go, the next model is the charity model. Tell us more about the. Tell us more about that. That sounds good. Uh, so yeah, the charity model has really close ties to the medical model that we just uh, were talking about, but. Typically, people um, talk about the charity model as being distinct, but again, it has really close ties. Um, the charity model is also known as the tragedy model, um, and I think that people call it that for a reason, because under this um, way of thinking, communities and society paint a picture of people with disabilities as kind of being tragic victims, um, or uh, that we meaning mainstream society, um, believe that, you know, people with disabilities deserve to be pitied or, um, the charity model also depicts people with disabilities as needing, uh, requiring to be, um, quote, taken care of. Um, and that means typically by non-disabled people or professionals. And, um, it's the charity models also closely tied to um, what Stella Young, she had a TED talk back in 2014, which is seven years now, and I can't believe that. Um, but Stella Young in 2014 was calling this, um, we might have, you know, heard about it in, in other places too, but she calls it inspiration porn. Um, and she means that like oftentimes media, and if we're being honest, um, you know, nonprofits and different organizations even can do this too, uh, is portray people with disabilities in a way that we think that disability is something that has to be overcome. And that when disability is overcome, that then, and that is something that's inspirational, or it's like a feat that has been accomplished. And so what I loved about Stella Young's TED Talk um, way back again in 2014, was she contrasted this again with that social model that we'll, that we'll get into in a couple minutes. Um, but Stella said really explicitly that she did not need to overcome any part of her individual body or mind. Uh, but what she did need to come 
overcome, excuse me, was the real barriers to inclusion and access that her community and that society more broadly has created for people with disabilities from uh, participating in things like public life and politics, um, general access to their community, and then also like we'll get into uh, work and employment. Yeah, yeah, I think you and I would definitely agree that the the charity model is not uh, not our favorite of the models mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. uh and and does really have that uh that pitying overtone uh for mm -hmm. an individual and i can think back to even my my career and uh when i started which was just about 24 years ago uh, just talking about hard to believe you're talking about <laughs> 2014 so i got into this field in 1997 i was uh, six years old at the time and uh the I think the way the this this model this overarching you know theoretical model of charity you know sort of manifested its itself in employment was you know we were still uh, spending time going out and 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 trying to get you know contracts if you will from companies mm -hmm. that where we could bring work to a location and have people do that work you know simple work thinking that well maybe that's that's all people can do and i mean where i work we don't think that way we we believe in in uh, everyone's potential certainly but even us mm -hmm. 24 years ago we're still caught a little bit in that in that paradigm mm -hmm. uh, so so um and going back to our former comments it's it's still perpetuating it, it perpetuating itself you know today so yeah yeah, yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Well, let's move on to the one I was I was already jumping ahead uh, at a little bit ago. And maybe it's because I'm so social. I just wanted to talk about the social model. <laughs> I know they're not the same things. But uh, uh, tell us more about the social model, Allie. Yeah, that sounds good. Um, so the social model really flips the medical model on its head. And it's been really impactful for me um, as I'm working through, you know, in the last, you know, couple of years about what we think about disability and how that um, as professionals, how that impacts um, the delivery of the programs and services that we both design and then that actually impact people's lives. So social model flips medical model directly on its head. And it really first emerged in the 1980s. And very importantly, the social model was first uh, articulated and described by people with disabilities themselves um, in many ways as basically a critique of um, what we just talked about, the charity and the medical models approach um, to disability. And the social model also played um, a really important role in the disability rights movement, which we'll talk about more last. But for now, the social model is so important because it focuses, again, on these access barriers that are created by mainstream society. Um, so any problems that are associated with disability only exist because um, society has been organized in a an exclusive way rather than an inclusive way. And one of the, the researchers that I've learned from in recent years, um, her name's Teresa Degener, and uh, she writes about that through the social model, people with disabilities themselves created 
a framework that they recognize that many of the challenges that they faced rested with the decisions and actions that society took and not with themselves or not with the individual features of their own bodies or minds. Um, and I think for people with disabilities, like that's really liberating, even with my own mental health um, disability, that's really liberating for me to think about that it's nothing, um, you know, any problems that I, that I, that I might face are not because something's wrong with me or that something needs to be fixed about me, but it's, it's any, it, all of it kind of, I'm more disabled by society's perceptions and bias and inaccessibility than because of, you know, individual features of my, my mind or um, other people's who might, who might have physical disabilities, um, their bodies. So I think that that's a really, the social model is super powerful in when it was first articulated. And um, yeah, people who subscribe to the social model, they kind of look around and they, and they question, they look at their communities um, and they, they say, what if people with disabilities were actually um, just those with individual differences who are actually disabled by society. Um, and so we've talked a lot about um, on my team at LifeWorks is that disability is really a normal part of life. And when you look at the, the statistics worldwide, when you look at disability as something that's fluid, that you can um, kind of any person can enter into the identity category of disability at any time in their life, um, the social model is really um, impactful again, that it's like, it's nothing that's wrong with people with disabilities. It's something needs to be changed in society. Um, and I think one of the most important things that I'll wrap up about the social model, just the, the quick description of it, is that disability, in this way, when we reframe it like this, can be understood as, and this is um, from uh, another researcher called Jenny Morris. Jenny Morris says, then we can understand disability as itself like discrimination um, in terms that we also talk about uh, other systems of oppression like racism and sexism. Um, and so it, when we understand it, disability under the social model, we can really start to have more of those conversations. And we can really start to talk about, again, society, rather than just the unique bodies and minds and differences and diversity of, um, of individuals themselves. Yeah, there's so, so much uh, really important and impactful stuff there and what you just talked about. And and you're right. I've, I've always believed and known that disability is a demographic that any of us can join at any time, mm -hmm. at any time. And I really appreciate, you know, what you say or, uh, about your, uh, your disability that's not apparent. And so mm -hmm. you are able to pass as somebody without a disability. I've lived with an anxiety disorder since I was 25. Mm -hmm. And what was really hard at the beginning was just the perception I believe people would have of me 
if they knew that I had an anxiety disorder. Yeah. And, and so, uh, you know, that is all uh, so true and so powerful. And, And this particular model had a tremendous impact on organizations like the one I work for, uh, as well as APSI. Uh, it was really in the 1980s when those pilot projects for supported employment started to happen, you know, just as this model was becoming more prevalent. Mm-hmm. And organizations in Minnesota, such as Caposia, got involved in uh, some of these supported employment uh, pilot projects, which really laid the foundation to, to where we are today with, with customized employment practices. And in 1990, uh, these influences really, uh, you know, created a group of professionals to organize and people with disabilities to organize uh, APSI as a, as a way to get to have a stronger voice and to advocate uh, for for employment. And if you hadn't figured out from our purpose statement, APSI is the only. And I'm not saying this to you, Ali, so much as just mm-hmm. to everybody in general, our, our listeners. APSI is the only. Uh, national, you know, and of course, state chapter membership organization that solely promotes integrated competitive employment, one person, one job at a time. So, so all those things were very impactful on, on the beginning of, of APSI and, and supported employment in general. So I was very fortunate, uh, like you, to, to join a great organization and um, uh, one that, uh, that was, you know, a member of APSI and Mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, really trying to, to push the envelope in employment. So, mm-hmm. so that's great. That's, that's great. Yeah. 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 I was going to talk um, for a second, if you don't mind, just about, um, I realized that I didn't mention earlier, um, kind of how I was going to talk about, like you just did about supported employment, um, about some of the things that I see um, that the social model um, has impacted employment, but um, I wanted to contrast um, a couple ways in which the charity um, model itself really kind of shows up still today, because I think by, if we can, when I reflect on how I see the charity model um, and just this big contrast again, like you're saying, like it was like a big shift in um, the 80s and 90s. Yeah, like right when when APSI and Minnesota APSI were starting to be, um, you know, de- developed in our, and, and come together. And I think that we have come a long way. And I think that Um, One of the things, though, at the same time is that we can't, and I think that um, you, Chris, do a really good job talking about it, is like it, we have come a long way, but there's still um, a long way we have to go. Um, And that even when we say we've come a long way, that doesn't mean that we, um, that we can't, yeah, like look back and, and think about how some of these, um, how some of these models like the charity and medical model um, impacted employment. And I think one of the the things that we've seen change um, is like career progression and leadership opportunities for people with disabilities. And I think the great thing that 
um, that we can be influenced by in the social model is, yeah, like providing those and not just thinking you talked about earlier that there's only a certain type of job that, um, that people with disabilities can, um, can fulfill and that um, we want to hear from people with disabilities themselves about what they're interested in and what they see their strengths as and how they want to use those strengths. And um, I think that the social model itself kind of wrapping this part up um, is again, like we've come a really long way, but I think the social model, um, there's a lot of potential that I don't know if disability service organizations ourselves, if we've fully kind of grasped this, um, this potential that it offers us. And a lot of the, the things that we talk about on my team are, um, you know, thinking about if the social model was really truly lived out by disability service professionals and the communities that we're a part of, you know, we think about things um, like, would there, would there be a need if barriers were all removed um, in our communities? Would there be a need for, for us and for job coaches in the first place? And so I get really excited thinking about this potential that the, that the social model offers us while learning from exactly like you said um, about the, you know, beginnings of supported employment um, and the movement that it took us into today. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well said. Yeah, our dream is that we don't have to exist, mm -hmm. that uh, working and participating in one's community is a normal fabric of life. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, you know, if we're all operating at those higher models or society is in, in general, uh, we, we could get there. So mm -hmm. that is, that's still our dream uh, yeah. is, is to is to not exist. And uh, I guess then I could go pursue my professional surfing career <laughs> in Hawaii at that point, but uh, not until then. Not until then. <laughs> That's right. So, all right, great. Uh, thank you, Allie. So, okay, so we have one more uh, model uh, that you're going to talk to us about, and that is the human rights model. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited. This is, yes, this is, this is where I get the most excited again. I tried to contain my excitement a little bit in the social model, but I get really excited talking about human rights model, but they both are really intertwined. So the social model paved the way um, for the human rights model and that time period of the 1980s that the social model was really articulated. We know in our country's history, the disability led activism that was happening in the 80s and in the 60s and in the 70s. Um, so people with disabilities were advocating for their rights themselves. And I think that it's important to mention, in addition to this, um, this fact that disability rights is disability led, um, is that so much of what we now call things like accessibility, or social inclusion would not have been handed over nicely by non-disabled or mainstream society, um, but rather it was really it was really fought for by people with disabilities themselves, and they they really led the way. 
and um, and they were they were kind of demanding that they be seen as equal members of society, and the human rights model is um, is it comes out of that that disability activism, and the human rights model itself. Uh, talks about that people with disabilities have the same civil, political, economic, and social rights as other people without disabilities. And I think that the human rights model builds upon, again, that progress made by the social model, because um, just saying that there's barriers um, in society, like the social model does, is only kind of one part of this inclusion puzzle. Um, and that the human rights model goes further and people with disabilities um, kind of fought for these civil rights legislation, um, which is what the human rights model is, is grounded in. Um, some of those that we know from history, it uh, could be like the section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973, um, the Americans with Disabilities Act of 1990 that we just celebrated the 30th anniversary of last year. Um, and then I will spare you um, the many minutes of conversation that I could go into, but um, it even goes beyond the US too. So I get really excited about, um, and what my graduate school studies were in primarily were on an international level. So um, there's even human rights models grounded in international human rights treaties. Um, one is specifically about disability and it's called the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. And that one is really cool on an international level because people with disabilities from all around the world came together in the early 2000s and they were organizing and debating with one another about what rights to put in this treaty. Um, and they all came together and they got that treaty passed in, um, it entered into force in 2008. So it's one of the newer uh, international human rights treaties. Um, and just some of the things that I talk about, again, I will try to spare, um, you know, all of the okay. we love time it. To <laughs> together. But um, yeah, in that like international treaty and in um, both domestic laws um, with disability rights, um, we kind of see different sides of there's this freedom from. So you might see different civil rights laws say people with disabilities have freedom from, you know, discrimination or exploitation or, you know, freedom from violence. You have the right to be free from violence. But then there's also these rights too. And one of the, one of the articles that's found both internationally and then, you know, in those civil rights protections that I talked about earlier is the right to work and employment. And so I think that that's, it's really important that both we recognize that the people with disabilities have the right to work and employment on an equal basis with others. Um, and that's both grounded in 
domestic, so U.S.-based legislation and protections, but also that um, the, the things that we're working on in this sector and the things that people with disabilities themselves are advocating for, um, it goes beyond the U.S. too, and it's it's bigger than the U.S., and we get to be, I think it's an honor and a privilege that we get to be a part of that, um, and I think that the human rights model also, um, it just, it takes us away in a really great way, an important way from this, this view that, you know, in the charity and medical model, it, it could be seen as that disability employment is just a, a nice thing or a charitable thing to do. Um, but what you've talked about, Chris, and that I know Minnesota APSI believes too, is that employment is so much more than a nice or a charitable thing to do. It like really impacts people's lives and their, um, you know, their livelihoods. And um, it's so much more than that. And so I think that um, in addition to that too, the human rights model takes us beyond, um, I'm going to do a shout out to one of my colleagues at LifeWorks. Uh, she says that the social model is kind of the facts of life, um, that just saying that society was not built or structured with people with disabilities in mind, but the social, or I mean, the human rights model pushes society to kind of act on those facts. And so, um, again, we can recognize that there's barriers to employment for people with disabilities, um, but things like inaccessible policies or bias or stigma or ableism um, are not going to be necessarily, you know, just overcome by, by saying that they exist. We actually have to take, to take action against those to make, um, you know, employment a, um, more accessible reality for people with disabilities. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, here, here, I can just uh, <laughs> feel everybody, you know, standing up and clapping right now. And just look under the, you know, APSI logo there, uh, as I'm down here, as I like to call it, the seller uh, mm -hmm. for this podcast, and the Employment First, Employment for All uh, there's no doubt that the human rights uh, model has been a huge influencer in the employment first policies uh, that we have throughout the country, including here in Minnesota, and that employment is a right, uh, and it's not something you should have to opt into, but should you decide you don't want to work uh, for whatever reason, uh, maybe something you opt out of, uh, so that employment is always the expected and preferred outcome. Uh, so people don't have to fight for that right, because that is an inalienable right. So, yes. uh, yeah, well, well done. You know, um, I think, too, it, it's had a huge impact just in terms of practices right now, today's practices of customized employment, mm -hmm. which more and more uh, professionals and individuals themselves are, are using as a, as a method of, of getting employment. The human rights model has had a huge impact you know, on that. Uh, mm -hmm. With customized employment, it, it, it's a step, it goes a step beyond some of the traditional supported employment paradigms and truly is strength-based, um, 
always starts with the person. Uh, so really empowers uh, the person to be the one that leads towards the type of employment, the type of careers uh, they want versus just saying, well, let's go out and see what we can find and, and see what you might want to, uh, you know, plug yourself into. Uh, it's a really different uh, way of, of looking at it, and it's creating, you know, job opportunities that are very real and meaningful, uh, you know, for people. Because as you said, Allie, uh, employment brings tremendous value to one's life. Yeah. And it doesn't matter whether you are somebody who is perceived to have a disability or somebody who's not perceived to have a disability, employment will bring value to your life. I think you and I would both say that uh, our employment brings huge value to our lives in many, many ways. Uh, For sure. Uh, you know, we could we could spend another hour just talking about that. But mm -hmm. um, yes, this 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 model um, that you talk about, I think we all hope becomes and continues to stay as the the strongest uh, theoretical model uh, to continue uh, just pushing towards, uh, you know, quote, unquote, normalcy, you know, yeah. whatever, whatever that is, you know, mm -hmm. I, I know mm -hmm. I, I don't consider myself normal, and I'm proud of yeah. it. But uh, <laughs> the, uh, you know, everybody, everybody should have the right to work that wants to work. And that's, yeah. that's really what it's all about. Absolutely. Yeah, beautiful. Uh, well, yeah. do you have any other, you know, just words of wisdom that you want to share with the audience? Yeah, I don't know about wisdom, but I'll I'll try to 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 wrap up with um just me being new to this field and learning from folks like you, Chris. And I know we've joked about, you know, that you've been in it for a long time, but I think that there's a lot of things that we can all learn from one another. And um I think that one of my favorite things about these different models of disability is that it does allow us to um, simultaneously reflect on history and say, oh, wow, look at how far we've come. But it also pushes us at the same time to, again, not sit in that space and just pat ourselves on the back. And we're always moving forward. And I think that, um, that that's something that I hear people with disabilities talking about in terms of the things that they want non-disabled professionals and uh, non-disabled advocates to really think about us. They're like, come on, we can, we can keep doing better and there's more that we can improve upon. And one of the things that um, I think tied in when I was thinking about how to wrap this up is that um, I think that there's there's really more things that we can again keep our keep pushing ourselves to be doing in our sector in order to really truly align with a lot of the principles of disability rights. Um, I think it's totally possible. Um, and uh, one of the things that um, I've been really dwelling on is something that actually one of our, our local leaders in the disability field um, from the ARC Minnesota, Andrea Zuber, their president, she gave a testimony at the Minnesota Senate last year, and it was really, really powerful. And she talked about um, that, you know, this idea that in the past four decades, we've created 
basically what she called a parallel universe for people with disabilities that to live and work in. And I think that that's something that we are able to see um, is influenced by those charity and medical models. Um, but Andrea Zuber's testimony is she says, we need to, to, to keep pushing forward with the social and the human rights models in order to address that parallel universe and that that's that that's not um oh that's not okay and that's not what true inclusion and belonging is and so um again i think that there's still a lot of work i'm excited about the work um, i think our sector is more than capable of doing the work um and i think that that comes with being uh humble and self-reflective and having some of these hard conversations. Um, and I think that there's some big challenges for the disability services sector um, around, you know, really big concepts like disability rights and systems of ableism and, you know, different, different parts of social oppression that, that we um, all play a role in. And I think that there's some really big challenges um, ahead in the coming years. I don't think that theoretical models of disability are the only way by any means to confront those big challenges, but I think that um, it's just, it's been a good tool for me, and I've just been really uh, privileged to be able to share some of that with you and the listeners here. Um, and again, I think there's work to do, but I think we're ready for it. Um, we're excited for it. And um, I think that the 2020s and beyond um, will be will be a time of real, real growth and progress. So again, thank you for for having me on here, Chris. It's been really great. Oh, great. Thank you. Thank you, Allie. Uh, it really is our privilege, you know, to have you here today. And uh, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Andrea Zuber. You know, she's somebody who started uh, in the field about the same time I did uh, and actually worked for Kaposia for a period of time, who I work for now, has always been a member of Minnesota APSI. And uh, so all of us at APSI are very proud of the work Andrea's done from Ramsey County to Dakota yeah. County to what she's doing uh, with uh, Art Minnesota now uh, she's had a, a tremendous impact and you know I'll, <clears throat> I'll i'll put a plug in for her late father her uh father actually was one of the huge influencers of uh deinstitutionalization in minnesota mm -hmm. and getting people mm -hmm. out of the regional treatment centers and into uh, homes in the community so mm -hmm. uh, a lot of great work and as you said a lot of great work still to do uh mm -hmm. you know we we got to keep this train rolling as i as i like to say um i don't mean to put you on the spot but uh have you ever thought about writing a book or do you have any Ooh. plans to write a book <laughs> i would love to write a book i've thought about it a couple times so <laughs> excellent excellent yeah. well put me just assume i want to be on the pre-order list okay all right i all will right, yeah. chris <laughs> you know and if you start like a kickstarter campaign or you know early buy uh, oh yeah purchase opportunities put me put on the you list at the top <laughs> yeah please put me at the very top you bet and mm -hmm. i want to sign copy as well oh yeah <laughs> yeah so yeah so thank you so much um i just want to say too you know when i started uh as, as we joked as i joke about a long time ago mm -hmm. uh, i was the young 
if you want to say that person, the new person, you know, in the field. And I learned from uh, people like Bob Nemec, Dale DeLeo, John Alexander, Jackie Molnarzik, you know, mm -hmm. more names than I can mention. And, and uh, I would forget so many, uh, the Heidi Mayhans of the world, you know, all sorts of people uh, were my mentors and my guide. And uh, I, I thought, you know, maybe at that time, I brought a little energy to the to their mission and to what they were trying to accomplish. And, and for us to get there, uh, we truly do need people like you, smart, energetic, uh, good head on your shoulders who want to do the work and want to join in the work because it takes all of us. And uh, life is a cycle. Uh, time marches on. And it's always great to see people like you. It, it really does give me hope and belief that we truly, truly can get closer and closer to what our dream is. Uh, with people like you, uh, you know, joining in this movement. So thank you so much, Allie. Thank you, Chris. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I guess I'll just close uh, as I like to do with one of my favorite sayings out there to everybody. Uh, again, thank you to Allie Strong Martin uh, for being here today uh, with us. And um, on behalf of all of our production crew at Minnesota APSI, who makes these podcasts possible. Uh, just remember, if you can believe it, you can achieve it. We'll see you next time.